For Beyond Profit, a podcast of the ANA Center for Brand Purpose, I'm Ken Bolliou. More than 70% of the meanings behind words, ideas, and concepts in culture are implied. Decoding those meanings through technology can not only help brands better understand what people are talking about, but add value to their products and services and create a feeling about that authenticity and purpose. Indeed, in a world fraught with constant change, context is everything. Just ask Ujwald Arkelgood, CEO and cultural anthropologist at the research firm Motivebase. He studies the language and meaning through AI and big data and uses that knowledge to help companies make better choices, invest in the right technologies, find opportunities for growth, and drive social change. Ujwald joins me to discuss the critical nature of his work, why brands should understand the language they use in storytelling, the role meaning plays in driving brand purpose, and much more. Ujwal, welcome to Beyond Profit. Thank you for having me, Ken. Very excited. Me too. I have to admit, Ujwal, I never expected to have a cultural anthropologist on the podcast. <laughs> but after learning more about your business, I can certainly see why that discussion is important to our listeners. So thank you for sharing some time. So I want to start out, um, you work with many Fortune 500 companies why should marketers really work alongside anthropologists? Yeah, I mean, it's a great question. I mean, fundamentally, marketing is about communicating uh, with people, with consumers, with audiences. And of course, a huge part of communication is the use of language. And in particular, we want to use language that isn't just understood, but language that emotes, that creates a connection, a relationship and that's in essence what an anthropologist does is understands why language has or carries meaning and an anthropologist's job really is to understand how the use of language changes and the meaning associated with the changes over time uh, i use this great example because you know in in marketing we're so used to thinking about audiences as segments, as you know, target segments and so on. The benefit of having an anthropologist on the team is the anthropologist says or thinks through the lens of narratives and stories. And that tension, I think, is a very healthy tension because from time and time again, we find that when culture develops and you know gains mainstream traction, it's because certain stories develop that slowly engage more and more people and they convey a set of meanings that become you know transformational to that context. And that's what's really fascinating about the way culture gets created. But of course, traditionally marketing hasn't thought of you know, communicating through narratives in the same way as, you know, sort of the traditional framework of segments. So that's the other thing. I think it creates this healthy tension and actually improves the overall nature of the game. So are you actually advocating diminishing the role of segmentation? Or are you saying, no, it's part and parcel with what you're talking about here? Narratives. Great question. I mean, I definitely am an advocate for diminishing the role of traditional segmentation. So what I mean by that is segments where we think there's sort of a hard line distinguishing one segment from the other. The reality is that it just doesn't exist that way. And I'll give you a great example. You know, I myself, when it comes to cleaning products, I buy a certain way that is completely incongruent with the way I buy food products. So if I was to be put into some sort of a tight segment, it would work in one context, it wouldn't work in another. And for us, what's interesting is that if we think about human beings as people who have belief systems and value systems, and we understand 
understand that those beliefs and values change with context, then suddenly the definition of the segments becomes looser, so to speak. The walls are thinner, and that's a much better way to think about you know the reality of culture and the way as human beings work and make decisions. So, in studying marketing through the lens of meaning, what advantages do marketers have as they develop their campaigns? Yeah, I mean, you know, we right now live in a world where, and I, you know, this is pretty much true no matter whether you're in advertising or marketing, we're so concerned about not saying the wrong thing that we don't take enough time to think about how to say the right thing. And I think the benefit of studying meaning is that when we know what something is going to mean, both implicitly and explicitly, but in particular implicitly, when we know what something is going to mean, it empowers us to take a much more proactive approach to how we say the thing, how we build communication campaigns or programs or even marketing strategies, as opposed to constantly being worried about not say, not saying the wrong thing or you know being misinterpreted. And we have so many of those examples. Every month, there's something new that blows up in the world of marketing because of unintended consequence. And I think that's the fundamental difference. Is it? It's empowering because then we know exactly what the implicit outcomes are going to be of our actions. I would assume that this is would be advantageous for copywriters. 100%. Absolutely. I mean, we have seen our clients do everything from build entire corporate strategies and initiatives, whether it's for improving diversity in hiring, whether it's for the entire organization's purpose, all the way down to giving this as a unified brief, literally saying, here's the playbook, the language playbook of the consumer, dear agency, dear copywriter, go play within this sandbox. So you once wrote that there are implications for the language we use when trying to communicate to tell a story. I think it was in a blog post that, that you had written. Just describe some of those implications. Yeah, I mean, the implications are significant. I'll, and I'll start with an example, maybe without naming them. Uh, but there was a retailer that had a kid's clothing line and the ad, and I was actually targeted as a dad, I was targeted and the ad said gender neutral clothing. So I click on it and sure enough, has nothing to do with being gender neutral. It was just clothing in the color gray. And I remember sending this to my team because this was a cringeworthy example where nobody chose to ask the question, what does gender neutral mean in today's context? Instead, they took the literal translation of that, which is gender neutral colors, grays and, you know, light blues and what have you. And not only is that deeply offensive, but it makes your brand, makes you as a retailer look out of touch with where culture is. Instead, what they should have done is understood what what gender neutral really means, what it's like to be a parent with a young child, raising them in an environment where you want them to understand and think of gender differently. You want them to feel comfortable and open about expressing their own gender and, and understanding the world differently. That's the territory they should have been in. And wow, that would have been an amazing campaign and program to launch. And instead, it was a bunch of clothes in the color gray. And I use this example because I think that's a situation where the implication was, you know, potentially really damaging uh, for this organization. Organization. I actually knew the SVP in this company and I sent her a message and then they immediately tweaked and canceled. So it didn't blow up and it wasn't a PR nightmare, but it could have been one. And then of course there are other situations like the Burger King ad, women belong in the kitchen. That was the ad. It wasn't, that wasn't the intention of the ad. We all know 
know that. The whole point was that they wanted to improve the representation of women and improve the diversity of their hiring practices. But of course, the ad in the process of trying to be cheeky conveyed the wrong thing. But it was the same thing if you had asked about the meanings around representation in hiring practice and stuff like that. We would have known very clearly that this isn't a space where we can joke about it in this way. To me, that's sort of the, if you're lucky, I think it's that situation where you get raked over the coals for a couple of months and you get to try again. I think if you're really unlucky, then you lose a whole bunch of your loyal customers for the long term. So the implications can range, but I think it's a very serious problem, especially in today's world where meaning is so complex and so diverse and, and so nuanced. So do you feel that marketers today are sensitive enough in terms of what they're spitting out in the marketplace? You know, for example, the, the ads that, that you just referenced would be, would be, most people would find offensive, especially the young, younger generations. I don't think they would put up with things like that. I think it's a mix of, it's a mix of it. And I think part of it is that uh, people haven't really learned to think about meaning in the same way. Like Ken, I always use this example, you know, if you run a quick Google search, every year there's been you know, maybe 20, 25 mainstream books written on empathy. And there's so much conversation about empathy building in marketing, but somehow there's hardly any conversation about the step that comes before building empathy, which is understanding. And how do you understand a perspective? You understand it by asking, what does it mean? You can't understand it by, you know, just taking it for the dictionary definition of it or some sort of technical literature. And I mean, we see this with plant proteins as well. Great example, because I've had so many situations where executives will say, oh, alternative meats category is doing really well, growing 25% last year. Great. What are we doing about plant proteins? And our job in that room is to say, hang on a second. You just made a leap from alternative meats to plant protein. Are you sure it's the same thing? Let's ask what they mean. And sure enough, when you ask, you realize alternative meats is about quick substitutions and, you know, once in a while, changes. Plant protein is about a whole change in your lifestyle. It carries all kinds of different meanings, requirements around nutrition and nu nutrient density and, and so on and so forth. Whole other world out there. But unless you ask what does it mean, you don't realize and you could be making some sort of blaring error in um, whatever investments you're making. So let's talk a little bit about your company, MotiveBase. Talk about how you decode implicit meanings and the motivation behind these ideas. I'm really curious about that. Yeah, I'll start by referencing the game Six Degrees of Kevin Bacon. I don't know if you've ever played that, but it's definitely central to the way we do the analysis. You know, the other day I was sitting on a patio and I overheard this conversation and immediately the anthropologist in me kind of perked up. So the, the first person starts the conversation about the COVID vaccine and about trust with the vaccine. And then I hear the conversation sort of go from there. The next response to that was about scientific evidence. The next response to that was about trust in institutions. It then went to big pharma. It then went to regulation. It then went to CEO payouts and finally ended in too much choice. How are we supposed to choose a vaccine? It's not like buying a car. And I use this example because apart from the very first person who actually set the tone for the conversation by referencing the COVID vaccine specifically, nobody else used the term vaccine or even referenced COVID or coronavirus, yet I knew innately overhearing eavesdropping on this conversation that everything was contextual and everything was giving meaning to what the vaccine means to us in culture, whether we like it or not. And that is what we refer to as that implicit meaning universe. You, you started our session by quoting this stat, more than 70% of the meanings are implied. 
this is how they get implied because they're associations of associations because that's how we human beings have conversations. Somebody says something, we take that something, we extend it to something else, and then it kind of goes from there. And so the reason I bring this up is because this is the problem we had to solve. We had to teach a machine because everybody has has access to the same data these days, Ken. Everybody can scrape, you know, millions of conversations happening on the internet among consumers, and it's incredibly rich data, but it's about what we do with it. How do we do an analysis of meaning? We had to teach the machine to understand context. So we had to teach the machine to do what I, as a human anthropologist, did observing that conversation among those group of people. So it can, first of all, build a model where it understands how meanings are associated with a particular idea or topic or concept by examining those associations of associations. And so that's fundamental to what we have done. We've built an engine that scrapes data, but instead of worrying about the literal mentions of a topic, like if you said, hey, do an analysis on the COVID vaccine and perceptions of it, instead of literally scraping the mentions of the vaccine, what we're looking at is the broader context of discussions, discourse to extract the meaning around the vaccine. So we always use this contrast of mentions versus meaning, because that's how we can understand what's brewing and what's coming down the pipe. It allows us to give our clients a more consistent, coherent view of the immediate and long-term future because of that. Are you also monitoring the, the social space to better understand what customers of your clients are saying out there? Does that factor into what you're doing? Yeah, so with uh, specific customer feedback, we actually rely on data that our clients give us. So in those situations, our clients, many of our clients have massive databases and communities because of you know, collecting data on their customers. So in those situations, yeah, we do custom analysis for them to help understand the meaning things that they might be missing. Like I'll give you a great example. A lot of people do NPS studies, uh, net promoter score studies. And usually the analytics around it is very uh, sort of obvious in the sense that, you know, if somebody's given me a low score, you look at the feedback and you go, yeah, it turns out people don't like that we chose the color blue. And then you get this sort of framework of analytical response. 32% that graded as low said they hate the color blue. For us, what it allows us to do is then uh, get to the bottom of why blue is a problem. So we can analyze the broader context of the feedback they're getting in, for example, these NPS studies and extract meaning data and then use our broader database to add further value and, and further validation for it. So we do a lot of that where we can give so much more context and uh, get to the bottom of the why behind the what in a lot of the customer feedback and surveys and data. So talk a little bit about the role that meaning plays in driving brand purpose and work culture. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, brand purpose is, is such a hot topic. And in particular, I think, you know, especially since the events of 2020 with sort of, I guess, the racial justice movement kind of really peaking with the death of uh, George Floyd and the coronavirus in the midst of that and everything else going on. Uh, certainly brand purpose has taken on a whole other level of attention in organizations, all of which is absolutely a, a positive thing. But the challenge that comes with it is that, again, the assumption is made that there are certain core pillars that 
we need to adhere to. And then the definition of those core pillars are sort of assumed. So for example, uh, sustainability, core pillar for most organizations. Uh, now, racial justice, social justice, a core pillar. So if I take those two as examples, there's an ass assumption made that social justice is literally about social justice. Again, the question isn't asked, what could it mean? And I'll give you a great example. One of our clients wanted to improve uh, diversity of hiring. And they came to us and said, we want to understand what does a diverse workforce even mean to people today? And I was so thankful that they asked that question because Ken, lo and behold, we discover that the one thing that every organization does that consumers dislike is telling them that X percent of our workforce is people of color or women or what have you. People think that those kinds of stats are sort of the sustainability version of greenwashing. They think these stats are par for the course. What they really want to know is what are you doing in terms of training education for people of color? What are you doing in terms of putting, let's say, women in senior decision? making roles or what are you doing in terms of uh, hiring practices so that you can hire acknowledging that maybe people from poorer neighborhoods do not have access to top tier universities and therefore should still be considered for the jobs and so on and so forth. So it's very interesting how when we ask about meaning, we discover this, I guess, a greater layer, we uncover more layers of the onion and then it allows us to be more specific in defining what purpose is. So that's what I'm getting to is that I think what meaning does is it allows us to get more specific about what purpose is to us. So if purpose is about sustainability, specifically what about it? How are we going to action against it? And why is this relevant to us? Those are the questions that it really helps sort of unravel. And it allows us to do that in a way that is still consumer centric. So do brands have to be careful in terms of words they choose for their purpose statement? Absolutely. Yeah, great point. Absolutely. Uh, because many times they may be communicating things that they don't even realize they are. I'll give you a great example. There was a um, trend, I mean, it still is, in um, personal care, skincare lines to change the packaging, right? So they suddenly announced that, hey, our package is recyclable. Uh, so we no longer use maybe a plastic liner in there, single-use plastic liner in there, or what have you. So it's recyclable or biodegradable or what have you. So they use these terms without understanding what they could mean. So there are situations where somebody would call their package biodegradable without realizing that to the consumer, the consumer isn't that naive. When they see biodegradable, they go, yeah, I'm not buying that. There's no way. What do you mean? I, I can just chuck this on the earth in my backyard and it'll just disappear. It won't. It'll, it probably will still be there when I die. And so I think it's those kinds of things to understand before we decide to make any claims or before we decide to attach any specific language to our purpose. If we understand what they could mean and what they currently mean and could mean in the future, it can make a huge difference in making sure that we're aligned with how the consumer thinks. You mentioned sustainability a few minutes ago. So when it comes to sustainability initiatives, you believe that understanding quote unquote cultural requirements is key to success. Why is that? It's a great question. You know, one of the things we don't realize often is that we can't uh, just implement a direct sustainability related benefit without thinking about what else needs to go hand in hand with it. It's, it's kind of like saying in the consumer's mind, it's a package deal. It's not enough to just deliver a sustainability benefit. It has to be associated with certain other requirements. If all of them aren't met, then it's not seen as an authentic solution that is sustainable. 
And, uh, you know, this is a hard reality for a lot of organizations because a lot of organizations will implement, for example, a better package, you know, a slightly better a set of ingredients, and they'll expect to immediately see the benefit, either a sales lift, better margins, but it doesn't happen instantly. And the reason it doesn't happen is because there's some other requirements that are not met. So one such requirement, for example, is that health, a focus on health and natural health health in particular, at the moment goes hand in hand with anything that is sustainability related. So for example, let's say you have a food product that has certain processed ingredients. Let's say it has a high fructose corn syrup as an ingredient and you decide to make your package more sustainable. The consumer is not going to see that as an authentic result, uh, as an authentic sustainable solution. And as a result, will not be willing to pay a dime more for it. And it may not actually result in any increase in sales for you. So before we think about implementing any of these purpose-driven initiatives, we have to think about what other cultural requirements go hand in hand with it. Because unless we can meet all of those requirements, we're not going to actually see the benefit on the other end. So Yujual, do you believe that sustainability and purpose are interconnected? Yeah, absolutely. They absolutely are. I think, you know, sustainability is a huge aspect of purpose. But if you ask, you know, what does purpose mean to people, to consumers today? What you'll find is there's a series of things. There are many interpretations of what purpose can be. I'll give you a, a great example of that. You know, you can see a brand like Peloton is seen to have purpose. Uh, they may not be about sustainability. It may be about helping you find, you know, the best in you or helping you achieve better things or feel better about yourself or whatever else that might be. Their brand purpose might be. But certainly consumers Consumers understand that when it comes to purpose. But the key is the way the consumer evaluates what is considered authentic in terms of a brand delivering against its purpose. And so that's where I think we have to consider the idea that if sustainability is a core aspect of your purpose, then you have to consider that that goes hand in hand with certain other requirements that must be met in the mind of the consumer. And we call, we use the term cultural requirements to reference that. It's kind of like saying, you know, if you're making a dish and you use a particular ingredient, you must also use two other ingredients with it. Otherwise, it's going to kind of mess up the flavor profile. It's kind of like that. And the most common right now is the connection between healthfulness and in particular natural approach to health and sustainability. Those two go hand in hand. So, you know, classic narrative, if you have a chemical laden cleaning product, doesn't matter what kind of sustainability benefit you bring with it, people will not pay more for it. But if you have a cleaning product that is already natural or trying to push the boundary on how it can achieve that naturally and you bring more sustainability initiatives, now you're actually adding, you're checking off all the boxes, you're giving the consumer exactly what they need, you're meeting their cultural requirements, and that will add value to your business, better margins, better sales. So that's what we spend a lot of time on helping our clients understand. You're also following a couple of trends, uh, you and Motivase. Uh, one of them is upcycling, uh, which you say has different meanings for consumers and for companies. Love to hear more about that. Yeah, absolutely. I'm, upcycling is really, really interesting right now. Obviously, with items, products that are more common uh, or more commonly seen in the upcycling universe are things like furniture. We've seen that obviously with packaging. We've seen that with paper in the past. Now we're also starting to see that with food. So, you know, for example, now there are companies that will take byproducts of food manufacturing and they've realized many of these byproducts, for example, soy manufacturing produces a byproduct that is very nutrient rich and can be 
reuse to make flour, it can be used to make cookies and what have you. There's a company called Renewal Mill that does a great job of that. And there are many other examples like that. So it's definitely progressing into areas and territories that are, I guess, less common or commonly seen in the past. But what's really interesting to us is that when it comes to upcycling, what makes a consumer adopt an upcycled product is the fact that that product can be shown off in a way. So what I mean by that is it carries capital with it, symbolic capital. It's a symbolic currency because I can use that currency to gain status, prestige in my social communities with my friends as long as I can show it off. So let's say I'm at the park with a friend of mine, our kids are playing and I unravel a cookie pack and it's upcycled food, I have symbolic capital in that moment. I can talk about how I buy this and the other person will say, wow, you're so amazing. And I feel good about myself. The same is true of when somebody visits your home and they see a carpet and you go, hey, that's reclaimed, blah, 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 and it adds capital. So that's the core tenet at the moment where upcycling is a value if I can gain symbolic currency from it. And that's an important requirement. So this is something I wanted to talk about because we may consider upcycling as a sustainability purpose-driven initiative we may want to build corporate-wide. But we have to think about if we want to extract value from it on the other end in terms of margins and sales and so on, then we have to think about how can we translate this into something that literally can be shown off by the consumer into something that you know is uh, easily converted into symbolic currency talked about. So what are the implications for brands? The biggest implication for brands is to think about ways in which to give upcycling initiatives visibility. So classic example, let's say I have an old printer, I buy a new printer, I made the effort to go to a particular center and to dispose off of my printer in a proper ethical way. I've made this effort. Nobody knows about this unless I, you know, tweet it or post it on my Instagram and blatantly brag about it, there's really no way for me to gain symbolic currency out of that. And this is an interesting design problem in our minds to solve for a brand. So if you were having somebody, for example, return clothes, let's say you're a retailer and people are returning old clothes and, and you find a way to give them something in return outside of coupons and discounts, what could you give them as a badge of honor that they could carry without needing to blatantly brag about it, but it gives them capital currency uh, in their environments. Maybe they're members of a special club and they get some shopping privileges. Who knows? But I think that's those are the types of design problems that organizations need to be thinking about solving with initiatives like these. Yeah, the other trend that you're following, Ujwal, is this whole notion of shared resources. So what exactly are consumers asking for here? Yeah, I mean, we're all very familiar with the shared economy with Airbnb and Turo and Rent the Runway and so on. But they tend to be big ticket items. You know, these are assets that are expensive typically and, you know, certainly not exactly day-to-day -day assets. You know, you, we don't think about the sharing economy when it comes to, I don't know, buying a snack or a dinner. But now the consumer's idea of the shared economy is expanding out of products that the consumer buys. So out of sort of front end, more to the back end. So consumers are now starting 
starting to ask some interesting questions, very intelligent questions about how one might be able to leverage shared resources in, let's say, the manufacturing, distribution, consumption of everyday household products. And, you know, you'll see discussions of, hey, why doesn't a cleaning company tie up with a food company? Because turns out along the chain of command, there are certain stages where they can actually share resources. Maybe they can share resources in transportation. Maybe they can share resources in the sourcing of certain ingredients and so on and so forth. So there's definitely something interesting brewing. It's still very early days on this. And we certainly haven't seen a good, powerful example of an organization having taken this and brought it to market. But I think this is something that is inevitable. And we're going to see some pretty incredible partnerships down the downstream. But we're just excited just to be able to track this and continue to understand it better. Right. So you feel that this would positively affect the supply chain? 100%. Absolutely. And I think the best part about this, again, putting on sort of the client hat, I can understand why it's frustrating to make purpose-driven changes to a supply chain when no Nobody sees it. And all you see on your end is an impact on your bottom line, but you don't get the benefit on the other end. And especially when you're a massive corporation with shareholders and a board to answer to and everything else, things get complicated very quickly. To me, the most exciting part about this is the consumer saying, hey, I'm interested in what happens behind the curtain. And that could translate into a consumer benefit. It could translate into equity for your brand. It could translate into overall purpose for your brand. That's very cool to me. Yeah, it certainly sounds it. <laughs> Lastly, Yujual, you had mentioned that driving social change is a natural byproduct of your work. Hoping you can elaborate. Yeah, absolutely. Our own purpose as an organization is to wake up in the morning and to study meaning. That's what we do day in, day out. Our purpose isn't to drive social change. Our purpose is to study meaning and to be anthropologists. But here's the best part about it is that, and you know, if there are any cynics out there listening to this, I think hopefully this will reduce your cynicism a little bit because there's a lot of bad things happening in our society and in the world every single day and there's no lack of that kind of news. But the cool thing is as we study culture, what we see is, yes, it's kind of like the Titanic moving feels very slow sometimes. But overall, culture is moving in a positive direction. You know, we talked about, just in our conversation today, we talked about gender and the future of gender. And there's a positive movement in the right place in culture in general. Whether we like it or not, it's happening. And the reason it's a byproduct is that we get to report on that for our clients. So we get to show our clients that the future of gender is less binary. We get to show our clients that. We get to show them proof of that. We get to quantify that. We get to show them that there's business value in investing in social change. We get to show them that there's business value in investing in body positivity, or there's business value by investing in diversity or investing in small, medium businesses or whatever else that might be. And again, this is not because, you know, we're waking up and forcing our clients to think about social change. It's just because our clients are asking these questions and we report back on what's happening in culture. But because culture itself is gradually moving in a positive direction, we get to deliver some good news. And I think that's very empowering for us as, as anthropologists, but it, it also makes us realize that the natural byproduct of our own work is that we get to show companies that there's money to be made in doing good. And I think that's amazing. Well, Yujual, thank you so much for enlightening me on cultural anthropology. I appreciate it. And uh, thanks for joining me on Beyond Profit. Thank you so much for having me, Ken. Super happy about getting a chance to just talk to you about some of these topics, uh, some bigger and hairier than others. So thank you so much for having me and giving me the chance to do so. 
No problem. To learn more about MotiveBase, please visit MotiveBase.com. That's M-O-T-I-V-Base.com. Until next time, thanks for listening.